0: Hey, I'm Warren Haynes, and this is the Blues Podcast.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Blues Podcast. Uh, I hope you're all doing all right. I've got a great guest for you here on this episode. Uh, I'm very excited to say, almost in the same room as myself, uh, virtually in the same room as myself, as it were. I have the one and only, the great guitarist, songwriter, the fantastic man. That is Warren Haynes. Hey Warren, how you doing, man? Doing okay, how are you doing? I'm all right, man, yeah, I'm, I'm good. It's, it's almost like we're in the same room, isn't it? It's kind of weird, but...
0: Yeah, uh, it is uh, today's reality, so, uh, you know.
1: <laughs> yeah, it is for sure, isn't it? How, how are you bearing up in the whole, uh, you know, of this, this, this pandemic thing? Are you managing to do any gigs at all at the moment, or any playing?
0: You know, I haven't. I've done a few things uh, where I just video me doing something from home or or, uh, in a a studio environment or something, Uh, but I haven't performed and I don't really have any plans to perform anytime soon. There are some interesting offers that are starting to come in, but – I want to step back and see where it all goes before I commit to any of that stuff. I'm intrigued with some of these like drive-in movie type concepts yeah. that people are doing, but I'm just not ready to, uh, be the canary in a coal mine just yet.
1: <laughs> I've seen a few, uh, seen a few pictures online about, uh, you know, the drive-in gigs and all that sort of thing and what the mosh pit might look like. Uh, it just cars piled in on top of each other kind of thing. I can't quite see that working, but, um, it would yeah. Be, yeah.
0: Hey, it's a, you, it's an interesting uh, attempt at a solution but
1: uh i mean how would you, you get reaction from the audience would they like toot their horns and flash their lights or something or kind of you know
0: maybe maybe so because you know i, I saw a thing on the news about uh a church in detroit where they set it up like a movie theater in the The preacher was on the screen yeah and when it was time for everybody to say hallelujah they honk their horns you know (laughs) so i i I don't know Uh, i i have no idea but i know people are ready for live music but you know i don't i don't think we can rush this whole thing we we have to step back and see where it all goes
1: yeah yeah we'll, we'll get to i'll get i want to talk to you about live albums later on but i know you've done lots of live albums i mean that could be a really interesting live album couldn't it you know
0: yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. it w- complete with the horns honking and uh
1: live from it- car park warren haynes <laughs> just uh yeah well there's something to think about anyway he could be the first person to do a, a live gig in a car park on, a- on record maybe you never know <laughs> something to aspire to right i think we should really get into it now and uh, and get going uh Oh, man, I've been looking over your career sheet, as it were. And I say sheet. I mean, it's like sheets, reams and reams and reams and pages of stuff that you've done. It's, it's unbelievable how much you've achieved. Um, but I want to start right back at the beginning, if that's okay. And I want to sure. talk to you about um, when you were growing up. And um, I mean, what was the first thing that made you think, I want to be a musician?
0: Well, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, the first sound that I remember like exciting me and and, uh, making the hair stand up on my arms was black gospel music coming over the radio uh, in North Carolina where I grew up. I was probably five or six uh, at that time. The first memory I have of a song I think was sounds of silence by simon and garfunkel Right, yeah uh, i still have this almost visual memory of hearing it in a car uh, in the driveway of, of the house where I, I grew up um but i had two older brothers uh, and still do and they have uh, <clears throat> amazing taste in music so i was turned on to a lot of great music uh when i was really really young Uh, They had, you know, the Beatles and the Stones, but even prior to that, uh, James Brown, Wilson Pickett, Otis Redding, uh, The Four Tops, The Temptation, Sam and Dave, Aretha Franklin. You know, it was a house full of soul music records uh, when I was growing up. At a time when you only had 12 records, they were the best of, the best of, the best of, you know. And so we had Stevie Wonder and and, uh, and all this stuff. But I still remember the James Brown 45s, the singles that we had. And James Brown was my, my first hero. Uh, one day, my brother brought home a Sly and the Family Stone record. And that kind of opened the floodgates. The next thing you know, it was Jimi Hendrix and Cream and Johnny Winter and stuff like that that would
1: eventually make me want to play guitar yeah just just speaking of that going back to what you said about having you know having those 12 records and that's completely different from what's going on now these days isn't it? i mean now these days you just get on a on a streaming service and everything is at your fingertips i mean back then how did you decide you know you probably got a few bucks as as allowance money or something how do you decide right i'm going to spend this on i'm going to go to the record shop i'm going to go buy something how would you how would you deal with that
0: Well, I think – I remember the the, the singles being 77 cents, which is not completely different than what it is now, I guess, you know. (laughs) But uh, you got two songs for 77 cents. Uh, I would defer to my brothers. And the first time I ever bought an actual LP or several LPs with my own money that I could say were actually mine – I asked my oldest brother what I should buy and he at that time recommended uh, Jethro Tull Aqualung and Alice Cooper Killer. Those
1: were the first two LPs that I owned myself. Is that because he wanted to hear them but he couldn't afford to buy them as well so he'd like to... Well
0: yeah probably yeah he didn't own them and he wanted to listen to them but he was also telling me I think you'll enjoy this you know because I was—I uh, don't know if I had started playing guitar yet at that point, but I was getting intrigued with the whole concept of rock music, which was a whole different thing than soul music. Yeah, and it was very uh, visual. We you would read the album covers and the liner notes and the lyrics, and look at all the pictures and, and stuff. And uh, but I was lucky that both of my brothers had tremendous taste, so. You know, uh, my other brother had uh, had all the traffic records and Joe Cocker and Bob Dylan, and uh, they. Uh, my oldest brother had Howlin' Wolf and Elmore James, and also had Sonny Rollins and Coltrane and Miles Davis. Um, so I, I really loved B.B. King at an early age, even though before I started playing guitar, I loved his voice, uh, but. Once I discovered rock music, I really got hooked on that, but I would go and read what all my heroes liked. And of course they all listened to, uh, all the blues giants. So I would start discovering yeah. that music, you know?
1: Yeah. That's interesting. Cause I hear a lot of people say that. And the same thing happened to me, actually, like, you know, you, you, you hear some music and you think, well, wow, that's fantastic. And then after a bit of digging, you realize it's like cover versions and it goes back to like howling wolf or little water or someone like that. What do you think? um those earlier older records had that the, the new guys didn't pick up on the blues records you mean yeah yeah uh
0: well it was just uh it was authentic it, where it wasn't being filtered through an interpretation uh where you know when when all these uh uh white rock bands and singers and guitar players started interpreting that music it was being filtered through their personalities and their technique uh and their voices you know uh and oddly enough or, or, or I guess it makes total sense all my favorite white singers at that time were white singers that were trying to sound like their black heroes you know whether it was uh you know, Steve Winwood or Uh, Greg Allman or Paul Rogers or or, uh, Van Morrison or or, uh, Lowell George, all these people that I really loved as rock singers, uh, Johnny Winter, uh, they were all emulating the the black blues people that I would have to go back and and rediscover. And it was cool to hear the original versions sometimes after hearing the rock versions because sometimes they were very, very close to the bone. Sometimes they were completely different.
1: Yeah. Which you prefer, which you prefer do you think? Do you, do you like it when, like, the guys just take a song and make it completely different? Or do you like that sort of homage to the original material? Well,
0: you know, I like it when you put your own stamp on it. But I also like it when you show people that you're not just visiting something temporarily. You're, it's something that you understand and have studied. So when, when you hear uh, someone singing a and Wolf song, it's nice to know that it's not their first time hearing and Wolf, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and so it's a combination of both of those, I think. People ask me sometimes what criteria uh, I use to choose a cover, and I always say uh, either a, a song that I wish I had written or a song that I always wanted to sing, or a song that I feel like I can do a completely different way and still honor the original version.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a, a good way of good way of doing it. I think. Yeah, uh, I want to keep talking about the early days for a minute and uh, talk guitars a little bit because I mean these days you're playing uh, quite often that the, uh, the the Gibson the fifty eight Les Paul reissue. Uh, everybody knows you're kind of uh, you know associated with. But do you remember the first guitar that you got? What was it?
0: Well, my first guitar uh, was a Norma, N-O-R-M-A. I never heard of Guitar that. <laughs> and a Norma amp. Uh, and it's funny. I was just uh, uh, on w- yesterday with Joe Bonamassa and he asked me the same question. He's one of the few people that I've ever met that knows what a Norma guitar right. is. <laughs> most, most of us don't have any idea what that would be. Uh, $49 and $59, respectively, the guitar and the amp. Wow. My dad bought them uh, in the local hardware store, uh, which, you know, that's where you want to get your musical equipment. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it didn't take long. You know, my dad would, he kept an eye on me, and he could tell that I wasn't giving up on this new uh, fad or trend or whatever it was. So a year later if I was still into it he would trade something in and get me a little better version.
1: Yeah. So
0: I uh, I guess about a year or two later I got a a copy, a Lyle copy of a Gibson SG. And then about a year after that I got a, an actual Gibson SG. So the first decent guitar I had was was a Gibson SG.
1: Nice. Nice I mean most kids when they're starting off and they say, Hey, I want to play guitar, or their parents want them to play a guitar. They're given an acoustic guitar kind of thing and see how you get on with that. Well, you went straight into the deep end with a, with a guitar and an amp. Eh? Uh...
0: Well, uh, my oldest brother had an acoustic guitar. Um, and I played it more than he did. So my dad bought me an electric guitar. Uh, uh, so he
1: could already see that you were serious.
0: Yeah. Yeah. My brother lost interest pretty quickly. Um, whereas, uh,
1: Is that when he saw you playing, he just thought, "Ah, oh,
0: <laughs> I, I can't... <laughs> who knows? Uh, but he definitely could see that I was more interested in it, you know. He also dabbled on sax and harmonica, but never never really took it seriously. Right. Where, to me, it became kind of an obsession.
1: So what, what kind of age were you when you first started getting into playing the guitar? Uh,
0: I was 11 when I played his guitar. And I think I got my guitar for my 12th birthday. Uh, I think I was 14 when I got an, my first kind of nice guitar. Right. Um, yeah. But, you know, back then, and, and I guess anytime, your parents want to see if you're going to maintain interest. And if, if not, there's no reason to keep upgrading you. You know, I came from a very working class family, my dad uh, worked long hours to make sure that I, I had even a $49 guitar. Um, <laughs> but he knew that I was passionate about it.
1: Yeah. No, that's, that's amazing. I mean, yeah. To have your parents back up like that is, 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 fantastic. The same with me, my mom and dad were brilliant, you know, supporting my career and all that sort of thing. And yeah, if it wasn't, yeah, there, because, they, you know, we wouldn't be uh, here. Right.
0: Yeah. Because I knew a lot of, uh, friends that, were good musicians that could have been really good musicians, but were discouraged by their family and wound up giving it up, you know? So it's, it's nice if you get encouragement.
1: So when you sort of made the decision that you wanted to be a, like uh, a full-time rock star, was your (laughs) your dad right behind you on that one? Was he? Well, he was very supportive
0: because my dad, my dad, uh, he still sings. He, he was a singer. He had a beautiful voice growing when I was growing up. He sang like Hank Williams. Oh, wow. But he never sang professionally. He never sang in public. But he, he always had just this great voice. And I think the fact that he never pursued it may have had something to do with him wanting to be more encouraging for me. Because he grew up on a farm. They had no money. Uh, He was working hard from the time he was 15. Yeah. Uh, So wanting me to have more than that, I think, was a big part of it. Uh, When I decided that I wanted to not go to college and go on the road with a band instead, (laughs) I can't say he was happy, but he gave me his blessing.
1: Yeah. You're very lucky. Very lucky man. Yeah. <laughs> um, just thinking back to that first guitar and when you got it. Do you remember what the first song you played on it was? Huh.
0: Uh you know and like everybody else for even even in later decades somehow either Louie Louie or Smoke on the Water, you know, I I, I don't know uh, but one of those I, I think I even played it with my thumbs, you know, boom, 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 like or ba 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 uh Those two I remember noodling around with, you know, but I can't remember much beyond that, really. Maybe some uh, Jimmy Reed-type riff that I stole from some uh, uh, white band copying it, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah. L- looking back on it now, which, which of those guys, the old school blues guys, is there a, is there a, f- a favorite for you? Now, I know you said earlier you like B.B. King the way he sung, but as a guitarist now, looking back, who well, really sort of influences you?
0: I think Albert King is probably my favorite blues guitarist. And I, I've always said that I think Albert is the blues guitarist that influenced rock music more than anybody else. Yeah. Uh, if you just look at his influence on Hendrix alone, that's enormous. But he also in- influenced Clapton and Dwayne Allman and, and uh, uh, eventually people like Stevie Ray Vaughan that really paid homage to, uh, to Albert. With all the other blues guitar players, including BB, who I love, uh, you could trace their steps. You could see where it came from. Yeah, with BB you heard T-Bone Walker, you heard uh, uh, Lonnie Johnson, but with Albert, nobody played like that before Albert King. It's like he came, he arrived on a spaceship, playing like that because I have never heard any indication of where he might have gotten that style from. Um, yeah, and it was so wild and, and so intense. But and I loved. I loved Freddie King. Uh,
1: yeah.
0: I love Freddie's voice as much or more than his guitar playing. It's and an amazing
1: I, voice, isn't it? Yeah. You know,
0: I only, had, I only had one guitar teacher growing up, and I took lessons from him for about three months. Uh, it was this blues guitar player uh, in, in North Carolina named Andy Hunter. And he eventually pulled me aside and said, look, all of my students don't even practice between lessons, they they show up the next week not having picked up their guitar. He said, I can see that you're obsessed with it. I think you should just stop taking lessons and teach yourself like I did. And he was being honest with me, which took yeah. money out of his pocket, which was very bizarre. But the, the one thing that I remember he told me, if you only study the three kings, meaning Freddie, BB, and Albert, you could spend your life studying that. Yeah. And, and I took that to heart.
1: And, and what a great thing just to spend your life listening to The Three Kings. I mean, you know, I could do that, definitely, yeah.
0: You know, and, and there's a wealth uh, of of stuff there. Between the three of them, you know, not that there are not uh, dozens and dozens of, of uh, similarly important guitar players, but those three guys pretty much uh, covered the, the gamut, you know? Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So blues was a big part of your early guitar influence, but, uh, it was also that sort of dawn of rock. Well, was, was it? I mean, we mentioned, just mentioned Hendrix. I mean, he was, he was a big influence in your playing, right?
0: Yeah. Uh, Hendrix and Johnny Winter and Eric Clapton were the first three people that I really discovered. Uh, you know, my, my brothers had live cream volume two, which was a record that I listened to a lot. Uh, The Hendrix stuff, I think the first Hendrix thing I heard was Smash Hits uh, before I heard uh, the the previous stuff. And the Johnny Winter stuff, I think the first thing I heard was Second Winter. Um, But it was such an impressionable time that I just spent countless hours listening to all all that stuff. And and when you're that young, it makes such a huge impression, you know. Uh, Not only in – what the guitar is capable of, but also the way it should sound. Like the, those were three distinctly different sounds, but they all had certain things in common. Yeah. And what I would later pick up on was that all those guys were looking for their voice on their instrument. You know, with, with Jimmy, the Strat was his voice, you know, uh, with Johnny Winter, the Firebird, mostly, although you know, you see him here and there playing Les Paul or, or playing uh, something different than the same uh, w- with Hendrix and obviously with Clapton. But they each created such a distinctive, a distinctive difference, you know. Uh, I would later figure out that the, what I was looking to do was what B.B. King had done and what uh, Bonnie Raitt had done, which is where your voice and your guitar kind of sound the same. Right. yeah. We're, one represents the other. You know. Yeah. Uh, I I loved Peter Green's sound, but I didn't discover uh, Green un, until later. You know. Sometimes in America we were late picking up, like, uh, and Kossoff the same way. I didn't I didn't discover Kossoff till later than than these other guys. I I did discover Jeff Beckett at an early age and was instantly uh, a huge fan
1: yeah.
0: of his. Yeah. And when I heard the Allman Brothers for the first time, I was knocked out. Uh, and by the time everyone in my town had uh, live at Fillmore East, uh, that was something we studied uh, intently, you know, yeah. and the guitar sounds on that record are incredible.
1: That must have kind of blown your mind a little bit. I mean, you know, to you're, you're young and you get this Allman Brothers record and you listen to it and you take it apart and kind of thing and you, you know, and then you end up in the band years later. I mean, did you did you ever sort of sit there and think, shit, how did this happen? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh it, you know, it was quite a a shocker and not a shock, I guess, just a it was an overwhelming uh life change, but thankfully I had a little initiation in the way that you know, I played in Dickie Betts's band for almost three years. Prior to joining the Alma Brothers, so that gave he and I two or three years to kind of hone in our our, our uh, relationship together. It wasn't like one day I woke up in the Alma Brothers, which would have been completely uh, insane. <laughs> but it was a, a shock in the way that every time someone would ask them about the band reforming, they always said it would never happen. So. The whole time that I was in Dickie's band, that's the way I looked at it, is there will never be an Almond Brothers reunion.
1: Yeah.
0: And that's the way I looked at it until they called me and said, we're reforming and we want you to join. I was like, wow, okay. Uh, well, but I, I was a huge fan. And, and, and uh, I always said that if there were a band that I grew up listening to that I would want to join, the Almond the Brothers would be at the, at the top of the list.
1: Yeah. So you were with those guys until, what was it, uh, when was it, 97, 97, they split up Um, again. I mean, was that when the the band split up again? Was Uh, that just a real kick? Well. Just got here and now it's, you know, it's finishing again.
0: Yeah, but, you know,
1: they were notorious
0: for splitting up. Uh, (laughs) They had a little three-year pattern. They would stay together for three years and break up, three years, break up. And so, you know, when I joined the band in 89, they had been broken up for nine years at that point. And the last two albums that they had done, they weren't very proud of. And so we reformed the band based on this Dreams box set uh, and the 20th anniversary. So it was really just intended to be a one-time thing. Put a band together, go do this this 20th anniversary tour and, and move on. but it was much more successful than anybody uh, imagined i think and and especially from a musical standpoint the, the the chemistry of that newly reformed band with the three new guys was better than any of us had imagined and we all felt it and knew that there was a a potential if we kept it together
1: yeah yeah did you did you I mean you did see it I was going to say did you you see it lasting really that long as long as it went or you just think this is going to be a flash in the pan and I'm just glad I've done it
0: yeah you know I had uh I was just starting to make plans to make my first solo record which I was already planning when I joined Dickie's band And then when I finished, uh, three years with his band, I thought, okay, now I'm going to, I'm going to make my, my solo record. Then I got the call to join the Allman brothers. I thought, well, there's no way I can turn that down. So i postponed my solo record again. But then after one year, I thought, okay, now I've done that. Uh, and I'll get on with my solo career. But the fact that they wanted to keep it going was a, a pleasant surprise for everyone, I think. And, um, it was nice to see that the band was uh, getting along, not only just playing well together, but everybody was getting along. Yeah. And, and also, I think a really important aspect uh, of that whole thing is that philosophically, the band had made the decision to go back to the beginning, revisit what the band did in 69, 70, 71. And if we can get back to that, then the sky's the limit. But the first thing we have to do is, is get back to that.
1: How much influence did you have on that? Did you have a lot of input in, into into saying, right, let's take it back to the the old days? Or was it kind of...
0: Yeah, you know, Dickie and I were very close at that time. and We spent a lot of time together and we discussed a lot of things. And he trusted my instincts. And and he and, and Greg both were very open to the input coming uh, from the new members. And I think... The Allman Brothers is one of those bands that it can't really be the new guys and the old guys and the new guys are up front and the, uh, or the old guys are up front and the new guys are in yeah. the back. It's It's got to be a real band, at least on stage and behind the scenes. Yeah. Um, so the fact that we had this chemistry was something we could all see and so – uh, everybody was open to whatever we needed to do to make it better. So they trusted me from an arrangement standpoint uh, as a songwriter, as a singer. Um, and, and it's partially because I'd been writing with Dickie. And then all of a sudden Greg recorded one of my songs just before the bullets fly for his uh, solo record. So yeah. suddenly I was writing for both camps, which was uh, a really good thing for me.
1: Okay.
0: And it also uh, kind of, It allowed them to gain trust in me, you know, because they didn't always uh, communicate so well together. Uh, They did for a short period of time. And then, of course, a few years later, that started uh, dissipating again, you know.
1: Yeah. So you were kind of that bridge almost.
0: Yeah. Unfortunately, sometimes I could be the one in, in the middle. Yeah. Uh, be, you know, Dicky would come to me and say, "Hey, I can't talk to Greg. Will you talk to him about this?" And then Greg would come to me and say, "Hey, man, I can't talk to Dicky. Will you talk to him about this?" And I was just like, "Oh, uh, not being back uh, at school." I really, I really <laughs> don't want that job. I <laughs>
1: mean, well, that must have been uh, amazing, uh, you yeah, know, writing songs for Greg. Though I mean, it's, uh, again another dream come true, right?
0: Yeah, you know, I was such a, a fan. Uh, and his voice and his songs uh, inspired me so much uh, through the years. I, I used to joke around with him and, and tell him, you know, most, most of what I, lo- what I learned from him, I learned before I even met him, you know. Uh, and, and I met him in 1981. I think we, we knew each other that long. Um, but where I grew up uh, in North Carolina – there was a connection with the Allman Brothers music, especially among musicians, but among uh, music lovers in general. All of a sudden, we had this band that represented us and looked like us and, and sounded like all the different things that we listened to combined. You know, because they were combining soul music and blues and jazz and country music and, and rock music and psychedelic music and all this stuff. And they created what people called Southern rock, but they, they never they never liked that term. you know. Right, yeah. Greg, used to, Greg used to joke around. Uh, I remember one time he and I were doing an interview together and somebody said something about Southern rock. And he said, well, first off, I, I hate the term Southern rock. He said, rock music came from the South. So it's a bit redundant. <laughs> He's like, it's kind of like saying rock rock.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that later, actually. But yeah, you, you, you've kind of covered that pretty much. Because I mean a lot of people call you a, a, a you know government mule um, a southern southern rock jam band I mean how do you feel about that phrase?
0: Well uh, I'm from the south Alan Woody was from the south uh, and we were a jam band in the way that improvisation was a huge part of our sound uh, and that we played a different show a different set list night after night after night but we were kind of the bastard child of the jam band scene. We were definitely the black sheep. The, we were the heaviest of all the bands that were categorized as, as jam bands. We always said that we had one foot in the rock world and one foot in the jam world. But uh, the thing that I loved about the jam band scene was that it was all about live music, and it was all about every show being different. Uh, and, and the Alma Brothers kind of adopted that philosophy pretty early on in, in our uh, reunion a- as well. You know, the first couple years that the, after the band reformed, we kind of stuck to the standard playlist. But after about three years, we decided, you know, let's just play as many different songs as we can, make the shows different every night, you know, which was a Grateful Dead thing. But it was also a, a thing that jazz musicians did. The thing that blues musicians did, and the thing that uh bluegrass musicians used to do, it's just in the rock world, it wasn't so common, and especially in the pop world, you know. But Government Mule, we were never really comfortable with the southern rock term for a few reasons, the same uh, as the Alma Brothers, that nobody wants to be categorized for one,
1: yeah.
0: Uh, and and since rock music started in the south, it was a bit redundant, but also. Our influences were like Cream and Hendrix and uh, and Mountain and Led Zeppelin and The Who and Free, so you know uh, people don't think about that sort of thing when they label you. But you know, it's it's interesting when you think back. I mean, Leonard Skinner uh, was were hugely influenced by Free. I think if if there was a band. That influenced Skinnerd more than the rest. It would be free, and mm. so free started Southern Rock in their own way too.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's an in- interesting theory. Yeah, I mean, journalists, music, music journalists, they absolutely love to pigeonhole music, don't they? They, they love to say yeah. this is that and that is that, and, uh, and that does drive me crazy because I've been, I've you know, I've I've succumbed to that sort of uh, treatment before as well. But I mean, what? How would how would you describe your music now? If someone if if aliens came down and said, Warren, we, we picked up your, your, your tunes on, on, on the planet Mars. What, what is it?
0: I would say it, it's a long description because I would say it's rock music. That's very improvisational and influenced by blues and jazz and soul music. Uh, but you know, I think any any great band that we grew up listening to kind of found their voice by combining some odd influences. It was it was never just obvious and and easy, you know. There were always some wild card influences that made people have a uniqueness. You know, even I remember BB King saying that every great musician has at least one influence that you wouldn't expect. And, and the person uh, that was interviewing him said, well, who, who is yours? And he said, Django Reinhardt. And yeah. it's like, wow. The fact that B.B. King listened to Django Reinhardt is incredible. But it makes makes sense as well because
1: why would he not? I could totally see that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I totally get that. Um, talking about styles and other things, I mean, you, you, I said at the beginning you've done so much work. You've recorded, uh, what is it? 23 albums with Government Mule, right? And uh, eight albums with the Allman Brothers, lots of different live albums. You've done lots of guesting with people. Uh, you've covered like so many styles and, and, and influences. Do you think, is there any influence or style that you just wouldn't touch and go, you know what, no, nope, I don't want to do that?
0: Well, uh, I mean, I, I see no reason to uh, say do opera or
1: uh (laughs) that's where i was going with this yeah uh,
0: and and again it's it's not to belittle any amazing musical genre or any any school uh but there are certain things that that i think uh i would i would shy away from and at this point most every genre of music that i'm influenced by i've already kind of touched on at, at least to a certain extent you know yeah um I've never made a real blues record and so at some point I think I'd still like to do that uh, But the blues has been such a part of almost everything I've ever done But somehow I've just never done a, a traditional type yeah. Blues
1: record. You know? oh, blues is in everything though really isn't it when you, when you really nail it. Absolutely. Out, it's the root of, of everything really.
0: Yeah, and, and uh, You know in, in some ways uh you have to dig pretty deep to hear that, but it, it's there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and some people don't talk about the the influences on... Black gospel music was what gave birth to blues, but there were not just African influences, but there were like uh, European influences that all kind of melted together too. There are a lot of people that talk about... Scottish music having an, an, an yeah. influence uh, on that, you know, because nothing is born in a vacuum. Somebody enters your environment that's exposed to something nobody else heard, and all of a sudden that's an element, and it's yeah. it's part of things from that day forward, you know. Uh, and, and a lot of the greatest music ever made was made because somebody blended something together that had never been blended before.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I hear that. So um we're not going to hear uh government mule's version of uh, of Flight of the Valkyries anytime soon or anything, right? That'd not be a, a special album. Uh n-
0: no, uh, I- and if so we it would be the efo- aforementioned reinterpreting. <laughs> yeah, we would do it. The way Frank Zappa would do it. Yeah. <laughs> See,
1: I think a lot of people are going to want to hear that. You're going to have to yeah. do it, no
0: worries. Well, including me. I wouldn't want to hear Zappa do it. I just <laughs> don't want to hear myself do
1: it. <laughs> so I'd, love, I'd love to hear that. That would be fantastic, I think. <laughs> um, uh, again, I'm going back to the list of all your achievements and, and the things you've done, which is an amazing list. And uh, just want to talk about some of the people you've worked with, um, people like where we spoke about, Joe Bonamassa earlier, and uh, uh, Peter Frampton, uh, Walt Trout lovely water Trout of course, um, William Shatner was on the list that I noticed, I mean what what's that about? I've missed that one, I've got to confess.
0: Well you know, uh, and, and I still haven't met him. I, oh, I, did okay. get a, I did get a nice letter from him thanking me for being on his album. Uh, I got a, our management received an offer for me to be part of this William Shatner record and at first we're, it was like uh, in, in Spinal Tap, is this a joke? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but we looked at the offer, and, oh, it has all these amazing guitar players on it. I think Richie Blackmore was on there, maybe Brian May, Steve Howe, I, I forget. all these people that I love, I, and I'm going I'm to totally mess up the list, but there were all these amazing guitar players on it. And I was like, well, if they're down, then I'm down too. So uh, they asked me to do uh, uh, the, the Golden Earring song, Twilight Zone and yeah. so Shatner is going help I'm slipping into the Twilight Zone and you know basically talk singing you know and uh and the, so I went into the studio to overdub absolutely no guidance nobody had any guidance on what I was supposed to do and there was all this open space like three minutes or something in the middle of the song where they wanted me to play and I'm like you want me to fill up all this, you know, so I had to come up with some way of making it hopefully interesting, you know, uh, but it, it was, uh, it was fun. And, uh, the company was great. And so I was happy
1: to do it. Hey, when Shatner calls, eh, you, you pick up the phone, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For, for the
1: next round for yeah. volume two. I mean you've had lots of guests on your records as well I mean you've had some amazing guests as well I mean I'm going to read out I'm I'm name dropping today because your 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 list of people you work with is fantastic but um people Elvis Costello and Dr John Ben Harper uh you know so many people you've had the list is really and I'm not going to go through it all but some great guests you've had working on on your records government mule and, and everything is there anyone that you've never just managed to get you know just uh, just if I if only I could just get such and such who would it be
0: well uh when we did the deep end sessions uh we were trying to get as many of Alan Woody's heroes to play bass they wound up being 25 bass players yeah. you know we had Chris Squire we had uh John Entwistle we had Jack Bruce and of course uh, all those guys are, are past now uh I had spoken to John Paul Jones about doing something and we were trying to make it happen. He was actually gonna do a string arrangement for one of the songs, which I was very excited about. But his trip to the States got canceled and we wound up not being able to do it and agreeing to do something in the future, which we did. And I I really enjoyed playing with John. Uh, We were also trying to get Paul McCartney for the deep end sessions. And I wrote a, a letter uh, appealing, uh, I remember I, the, the letter that I wrote said, I'm not inviting you as a Beatle and as one of the the most influential, influential people on, on music. I'm inviting you as one of the most influential bass players in music and in the same way we would want Jocko Pastorius or James Jamerson if they were still alive. Paul McCartney is that important to bass playing, and that's what this record is all about. And we got a response that was very nice, but uh, obviously it would have been amazing to have, have him be part of it. Um, I've been so lucky. you know. I mean, I, I've worked with, with so many people that I grew up uh, loving and, and, and being influenced by and you know in the blues world alone i mean playing with john lee hooker or willie dixon or albert collins those were all huge things to me uh you know but the the list it is pretty uh overwhelming in the way that i'm very humbled by the amount of people i have been able to work with i've never worked with uh Mark Knopfler or Jimmy Page or Neil right. Young—all those are all people that I it, it love that I would happily do something with. But you know, these things happen organically. It's not—it's never something that you know you you try to make happen. It usually happens where you meet somewhere in a in in, in an environment and it turns into something. You know. Yeah. Um, I see and so i'm open to to whatever happens but uh, again i'm just very grateful for the 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 situations i've had
1: yes you say that about organically and things happening i mean that that very thing happened to me with paul mccartney i was doing a gig that he was at and um he really liked the band i was playing with at the time and a couple of weeks later i got a phone call saying would you like to come and record uh, an album with paul mccartney and i'm like I don't know. I think, you know, I wash my hair. I'll, I'll have to have to think about it, you know? <laughs> Shit. Yeah, I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah of course, yeah. yeah. Um, actually, in the end, it never came off. So it was one of those carrots that was dangled in front of us. And, you know, we got all excited about it. And um, I think I ended up playing in the States when it was being recorded anyway. But um, it's... It, between me and you i heard the album when it came out and i thought it wasn't very good so i was kind of like happy that i dodged that bullet like you know i was like but well, don't tell no one that
0: all right well whether it's between you and me or not is up to you because this... <laughs>
1: yeah. i won't tell anybody oh, i think i've just blown that one haven't i ah oh, that's cut that, it
0: cut that section out yeah
1: he's not going to send me christmas cards anymore sorry Paul. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you're enjoying this little chat that uh, we're having with Warren here on the Blues Podcast. Uh, As you can see, Warren's got so many fantastic stories and and I'm enjoying chatting with Warren so much. I think we're going to make a bumper podcast out of this one and uh, we're going to have a part two because there's so much to go over still. So um, look out for part two of this podcast. It's going to be coming up very, very soon and uh, you can hear the rest of all the exciting stuff that Warren's got to say here on The Blues Podcast. So if you've enjoyed this, why not like and subscribe to The Blues Podcast right now. All right.